Do you want to stop yelling and have your child listen to? Well, I have exciting news for you. If you're hearing this right now, it means that the doors to mindful parenting are open at mindfulparentingcourse.com. This only happens for a limited time, and it may be perfect for you if you want to be that patient, calm parent, but you're afraid of being walked all over, you're losing it, and you want to be that steady, peaceful parent, you don't have a cohesive method, and you take in bad advice like just count to one, two, three. Mindful parenting is an evidence-based system that not only teaches you how to calm your reactivity, but offers you a ton of personal guidance. A lot of other parenting coaches talk about the best way to respond to your child, but guess what? They don't walk you through the research-proven practices that it really takes to create changes that actually last. Mindful Parenting teaches you the specific steps to create cooperative, loving relationships for life. In Mindful Parenting, you can learn how to stay calm, even if you find yourself shouting hourly now. Be present for your child no matter what they're going through. Resolve conflicts easily without yelling or taking away the iPad. Set limits without your child resenting you for days afterward. And build trust between you and your child so that you avoid misery in the teen years. The doors are open now at mindfulparentingcourse.com. Unlike other programs in Mindful Parenting, we offer one-on-one coaching to every member and weekly drop-in coaching sessions. Don't wait anymore. You and your kids are worth leveling up. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. Mindfulness is very much at the core of what I think is the most important thing we can do, which is to be aware of when we're getting triggered ourselves and when our own emotions are on the line and are driving the way we respond and we parent. Because that usually means that we're sort of off kilter, off balance, if our emotions are coming up too strongly and that we need to take a moment and reset before we talk about anything with our kids. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast episode number 308. Today we're talking about how to help your kid with middle school with Judith Warner. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, and when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of Mindful Parenting, and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confidence kids. Hey there, I hope you're doing well today. And listen, I just want to say this right off the bat. If you have young kids, this is actually a really important episode for you to listen to, even though we're talking about middle school, because some of the work that we talk about, some of the things that we are referring to in this conversation have to do with what we do when we're young, right? So all the parenting that we we do kind of up to the middle school point really makes a big difference. And if you have a middle schooler, like I do, um, this may be a really, really great episode for you. But first, I just want to give you a quick welcome. If you are new, welcome, welcome. I'm so glad you are here 
308 episodes. Oh my gosh. We have over a million and a half downloads now. It's amazing what this podcast has has done over the years. And I love connecting in this way. I'm so glad you're here. Big welcome if you're new. Listen back to the archives. They're all at mindfulmamamentor.com because I know you can't even get all of them on your podcast players now. Crazy, huh? Let's think about this, right? Like middle school. (laughs) So few of us look back on our middle school years with fondness. You'll hear me talk about my middle school years and how it was really hard time for me. And, you know, we just talk about what can we do to help our kids positively navigate this time in our lives. Today, I'm talking to Judith Werner, an award-winning and best-selling journalist whose latest book is And Then They Stopped Talking to Me, Making Sense of Middle School. And I want you to listen for some really important takeaways. We talk a lot about mindfulness because it's really key to be aware of when we're getting triggered as she says, and how our own emotions are on the line. And, you know, one of the things I think that's a really important takeaway for you to listen for is that we become less effective as parents when we begin to equate our child's experiences to our own. So sometimes we want to relate our kids' experiences to our own, but she really points to the idea of being open and curious and not jumping to assumptions, right? Which is all of that mindfulness work. And we talk about the pros and the cons of intervening and how to give your middle schooler really a safe haven and how vital that is. So this is a really powerful and important episode. And that's all for now, my friend. I'm wishing you a lovely listening experience. Please join me at the table as we talk to Judith Warner. Judith, thanks so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm glad to talk to you, but I have to admit, as I was reading your book and then they stopped talking to me, I have my copy here. It was like, I had to take it in small doses and it was hard for me to read some of it because seventh grade was the worst year of my life as, as I found out was very natural for everybody, you know, that, that it's a, it extreme extremely common situation for that to be the worst year of my life. But like, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was terrible, intense and just, I don't know. And I've always like, yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm enjoying reading it. I'm learning so much, but there, it was, it was a little hard to read. What, what made you want to dive into middle school? It seems like the, the time of life that adults are like, okay, we don't want to look back on that because we've lived through it once. (laughs) That's so true. It's, it's absolutely true. Although I'm, I'm so curious can you say in a couple of words, what happened in seventh grade? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I had, I had, like some boys who were really mean to me and like kind of bullied me. Actually, I met my, the guy who, well, I knew him from kindergarten through senior in high school. So he kind of was like a jerk to me that whole time. I met him Uh recently last year and he was like in terrible shape, which I have to admit like the 3% evil part of me found like really satisfying. Unfortunately, I'm sorry, but, um, but he was like a real bully to me, like most of my life. And then there were friend issues. And then I was a real jerk to like this girl who was like a best friend of mine for a long time. And I kind of like left her behind. I mean, it was just, there was a lot of suffering uh, on all sides and it was really, really hard. 
I mean, in every possible way, those are such typical stories. And even the fact that you had, you were on the receiving end of friendship issues and bad behavior, but also you can acknowledge that, you know, you played a role that wasn't terribly nice in the life of someone else. That's how it tends to be. You know, I think that when we tend to have very selective memory, when we look back on our middle school selves, sometimes I think people are probably harder on themselves than they need to be. And then sometimes we kind of repress what wasn't terribly nice and just move forward with our own feelings of victimization. Um, so it's it's great and you know somewhat unusual that you can just pull to mind immediately both sides of the both sides of the equation. You know, a lot of people I spoke with, and I will answer your question, I promise, mm-hmm. would only have one story to start off with, generally of having been treated badly and then in telling it, all of a sudden they would realize that they were one of the popular kids and that they had been cruel to others or something. And, and it only came back to them by telling the story in depth. So I apologize. I couldn't resist asking you about your story because that was so fascinating to me for this book. Uh, When I started out, I reached out just, you know, generally like a general kind of email, see like who's interested in talking and I had more responses. I had a huge response rate. And then people would refer me to other people. And I could, five years later, I could still be doing these interviews every day. They were so intense. Wow. They would go on for two, two and a half hours. And I realized that when you say to somebody, tell me your middle school story, they will basically give you kind of almost like a synopsis of their whole life in the way that they tell it. Partly because for a lot of people, the things that happen to them in middle school affect them so deeply and stay with them for so long, but also because of the way we tend to tell these stories, we give what happened to us in middle school a lot of power and a kind of determinative power in how we tell our stories and how we think of ourselves. And um, that's a little bit of a backward way toward answering your question. Mm-hmm. The idea actually came to me as a middle school mom when my um, daughters were in middle school in the book, as you'll have seen, I turned them into one daughter for privacy's sake. Um, in speaking, it's, re- it's, it's sort of impossible to uphold that. But um, I was really struck because I had been around the other parents since mostly since kindergarten, but at least, you know, for, for quite a while. And I noticed that there was such a change in the general social atmosphere with the parents when the kids got to be in like sixth, seventh grade, seventh especially. And it really was like everybody became very tense and very sort of shut down. And there was this general sense that they were about to embark upon the worst period of their lives. And that was going to be really horrible and scary. And we had to kind of like every household had to batten down the hatches, you know, to to make sure to be protecting, you know, the, the their own kid perfectly. And I was really struck by the fact that the, the kids themselves didn't seem to me to be anywhere nearly as vicious as I remembered them being when I was that age. They were just they were kids. And the stuff that they did, the way they looked, the way they acted, it was very much like what I remembered, only minus the homophobia, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and 
with pushback for, for sexual harassment, which for there was, we didn't even have the term when I was that age. But the parent behavior was often so odd in the kind of micromanaging social stuff or getting into snits about this, that, or the next thing, or somebody saying, you know, don't listen to her, she's lying, you know, just crazy middle schoolerish social stuff that I found myself wondering, who are these seventh graders walking around inside of us? And are they coming to the surface now that we've got kids that age? And what do people carry forward? And how does what they carry forward impact them, especially as parents? Um, and I actually found an email I had written to the school counselor around that time, just saying, um, I would love to write a book asking those questions specifically. And uh, of course she didn't answer, but um, the, the idea kind of stayed with me and really stayed with me. And finally I decided to give it a try. Now the book is a lot more than that. Um, it is about what we carry forward and how it affects us, but it's also about why we think about middle schoolers the way that we do and why we perpetuate this kind of miserable period in life, you know, that people have been talking about as awful and the schools as awful for a, a century, basically. So um, I, you know, I was trying to figure out why that was and why things didn't change and get better. Wait, for a century. So like before this, they, we didn't talk about this period. Now I, and I just want a full disclosure. Like I've totally talked about this with my kids as like, you know, I've, they go to uh, a public charter Montessori school that goes through eighth grade. And so I wanted to be available to talk to them if they had stuff like the things that came up for me come up for them. And so I've kind of asked some questions about what's going on, you know, or is anyone being bullied or treated badly or whatever, you know, just trying to open the doors for that. And as far as I can tell with my daughters, like that's not happening in their school, it, which sounds like it's great. Like it sounds like it's a really like wonderful, unique kind of school environment, but I'm curious, I guess. So I've, I've definitely been asking those questions, but this is, this, is this something that has come about like after industrialization? Is exactly. That saying? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Basically, as soon as parents started spending extended periods of time at home with their kids in early puberty, which, you know, in the late 19th century was around 14, let's say, you know, 14, 15, um, they started complaining about them. They started finding them really awful. And in the past, you know, most kids had started working when they were, when they got to be that age, they worked as servants in someone else's home or they worked out in the fields. Um, and there, of course, I'm just talking about white children in the U.S. Um, for black children, it was, you know, that much worse um, through the uh, middle 19th century. Um, the parents, once they really were stuck with them, and of course, and wealthy white parents were sending their kids to boarding schools by that age. Mm. So they really weren't spending this extended time. And once they were, they started to find them incredibly difficult and, and kind of unlikable. And then when junior high schools came into being right around the turn of the 20th century, um, this happened in part because of an issue of, of overcrowding, because people were having their kids stay in school longer, because there were more opportunities in the 
in the post-industrial, you know, era, if you stayed in school, there were there were different kinds of office jobs you can do, and you could hope to have your, you know, your status rise. Um, and the K through eight schools, which is what we had at that point, were just overcrowded. But there was also a feeling among education reformers, there was both a feeling that the kids were at a special stage in their development and needed something more than what an elementary school could offer. But there was also the sense that they were in a really yucky stage in their development and needed to be kind of contained together, you know, to protect the younger kids. They, they needed, the younger kids needed to be protected from them and they needed to be protected from the corruption of high schoolers. Um, not that many kids actually stayed through high school at that point, but those that did. And that's how the junior high school came into being. And many of the ways we talk about these kids now and the stuff that we get upset about and worry about with technology, et cetera, parents have been worrying about ever since they started spending a lot of time together, almost it, in the same words. You have, a, yeah, you have a fascinating chapter about the history because I, I was kind of flipping ahead and I was like, oh, and I started reading it and I thought, Oh, and then I, I I saw that what I had been reading had been written in like the 1950s. And I was like, oh, wait a second. I thought that was written <laughs> for today. It's incredible, actually, how similar it is. Even in the 1920s, parents were talking about the corruption of technology. You know, there are all these, <laughs> these newfangled kinds of technology, like the motion pictures, you know, or, or radio. Um, cars that were giving them, giving kids this new kind of freedom. Obviously, kids that young weren't driving, but older teenagers. And they didn't, parents didn't like the language they were learning from their peers. They would just generally felt like, you know, through elementary school, they, they had some control over kind of what their kids were doing and what they were seeing and who they were seeing. And then for junior high school, the schools would draw from a broader range of neighborhoods. So your, your kids could have friends whose families you didn't know. And, you know, very much like today, there was just this fear of who knows who they're spending time with and what bad habits they're picking up, what bad ideas, what bad words. Um, it's it was amazing to me to see how similar the complaints we are supported by Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math Mysteries About True Histories. It's a weekly show full of time travel puzzles, hidden equations, history, and lots of laughs. I highly recommend this podcast. It's really wonderful, especially if you have kids like around like six plus, but it can totally be enjoyed by the whole family. So I listened to the episode, The Pirate Queen, and you're just dropped right in the middle of the action. People are fighting. There's sword fight. And then these kids, they've gone on a time travel mission and they have to solve problems in the midst of it. And it really just like exemplifies everything we support here at Mindful Parenting. You know, kids who are adventurous, doing things on the world, they're capable. And then they do things like they have to do math, they have to think critically, they have to code break and pattern solving and all this great stuff. Beyond just the Pirate Queen episode, which I highly recommend, episodes transport listeners to moments in history, too, like Pythagoras, Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. So jump in with your family. Follow the adventures of Max and Molly on an adventure through time with puzzles and hidden equations and laughs. And it really does make learning really fun and really cool. Perfect for ages six and up. 
New episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids, and you can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. That's Mysteries About True Histories. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And the season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. I mean, those are legit complaints, I have to say, because I mean, I know from my own experience, like I fell in with some people who gave me some, you know, I got some bad habits and bad ideas through late middle school, early, early high school in those times. But but I mean, why is it like we know, obviously, that puberty is happening at that time. But why is this such a challenging time for kids? And why is this? I mean, can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. Much of it, unfortunately, is is hardwired. And much of it also, though, has to do with the way we educate them. And I do want to remember to ask you about the Montessori school later. Um, this is a period that scientists refer to as a, a second critical period in brain growth, um, second only to the incredible amount of change and speed of change and plasticity amidst all that change that happens in the period of infancy through age three, which we know of already as a critical period for language and uh, you know, connectedness to people and that kind of thing. Um, at a time like that, kids are super vulnerable. They're also wide open to new experiences and able to learn in new ways, able to do new and exciting things and wanting to become more independent and be more in the world, the more aware of the world generally. The good side of all of that is that they can do amazing things in school. And if they have some more independence, they can really enjoy it and, and make, make new discoveries. The bad side is that all the things that happen to them hit them really hard. They're super vulnerable emotionally. And they're especially vulnerable to anything social. The, spe the, the specific brain changes have to do, some of them have to do with how attentive they are to the social signals they get from the people around them. They develop much uh, sharper social skills. So they're more able to pick up on social cues, be attuned to them and interpret them. So if, you know, if people are rolling their eyes, they might not have noticed a couple of years earlier and now they do. Mm -hmm. And they want approval and status, you know, popularity more than at any other point in their lives. 
So everything about that, it's like this combustible mixture. In addition then, in, in most schools at least, although this is changing, they have to switch schools right at this incredibly vulnerable moment. Going from an elementary school where they've been the oldest, they've been a long time, it's usually relatively small and the teachers know them, so it's cozy, into a big impersonal middle school where they have to switch classrooms for all of their classes. There's way more academic competition, you know, the, the stakes are higher, what math they're tracked into, you know, or whatever else of that kind. Um, and where they don't know where they fit anymore. Everything is all shuffled up. And um, they're at a point where, again, naturally, they're becoming more independent from their parents, from their families of origin. And so they're looking for a new place to belong, you know, a new mm -hmm. sort of replacement family, in a sense, to give them identity while they're figuring out who they are. And that's why clicks become such a big deal. That's why, you know, the kind of thing you said about leaving a friend behind. I mean, that happens all the time. That is the most common story in the world. And one woman I interviewed put it so well, you know, she said, it's almost like there's an algorithm that everyone is developing along and then people diverge and they go different ways. And somebody who you've been moving along with through, let's say, fifth or sixth grade, maybe is now developing at a different pace, pace or in a different direction and you're going this way and you just, it becomes impossible sort of to take the other person along with you. And it tends to be the one who is more childlike, I think, who ends up getting left behind and the one who's more teenagery in a way, you know, who sort of moves forward. And um, it, it hurts and it happens so much. And kids don't have the vocabulary to even think about it in terms other than, you know, for the one left behind to feel terrible about his or herself and to be very angry at the other one, you know, um, and the one who moves on, of course, ends up feeling guilty in the future, most likely, you know, most frequently for what I hear. I have wanted to atone to Karen Sudo for so long. <laughs> and it's, it's like pointless at this point, you know, she would be like, okay, Hunter. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be one of those, um, okay, you've made yourself feel better and made me relive a yeah, very exactly. beautiful moment. Yeah, so like, maybe not. Yeah. Totally self-serving. I know. <laughs> and, and, you know, and you write that, like, you have written also that there are evolutionary psychologists who, who talk about this period as like, where we are just one of of all primates that are sorting themselves into different sort of hierarchies at this time as well. Absolutely. And that's something that I found so fascinating. And I had heard Michael Thompson, the psychologist say many years before then, even um, before I started working on the book, he had, he had done a talk locally and he had said all primates sort themselves hierarchically at puberty. The reason being that they are preparing to mate. And who you get to mate with is determined by your, your status, um, your access to resources, you know, and your desirability in the sense of, I mean, for animals, how healthy you seem, you know, so how likely you are to pass on gen genetic material. And, you know, the, the carryover to middle schoolers, who of course are not ready to mate, but if you go way, way back in our evolutionary history, there wasn't this long gap between puberty and mating. There were, you know, marriage, if you're going less far back, um, because puberty came later 
you know, and people paired off a lot earlier. The gap has never been as wide as it is now. So it's, you know, you can see these sort of ancestral bits left over, you know, beauty as the stand-in for good health, right? Mm -hmm. Size, it's that tends to be, certainly with the boys, it's the more developed boys who are pretty much always the most popular in the sense of, you know, power popular. Um, Access to resources, very often it's the wealthier kids who are more popular. And also it's sort of interesting for girls, really for all of them, but especially for girls, really great social skills. Um, The ability to navigate the social world in a very kind of high level and um, sophisticated way. And that was, again, in our prehistory, another way to have access to resources for females um, because they were not going to go like conquer or, you know, get into physical battles over access to resources. It was going to be through communication and coordination. And so the social skills right at that point in life became so important. And I mean, you know, there are people who I think find evolutionary psychology reductive, no doubt. I just think it's fascinating. And it's and also it's one of those things that's fun to think about, especially if you're a parent of a middle schooler, you're struggling and suffering, watching your child struggle and suffer. And I just think anything that allows you to kind of abstract yourself out from the situation a mm-hmm. bit, like picturing them as primates, is a step in the right direction. It just makes it it just makes it lighter, you know, and uh, allows you not to get sucked down so far, which mm. happens way too much. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and, more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests, too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. 
Yeah, I, I want to talk about how we can help or, or hurt this situation as parents. And obviously, you're kind of alluding to some some uh, removing a little bit. But you also mentioned, like, when I was asking about this, why, you know, we you talked about the way we educate kids. Is it just simply the pulling them out at that time? Or is it have more to do with the, the way traditional schools are? Well, there's a lot of research showing that middle schoolers in the United States, compared to their peers in other similar countries, are far more unhappy. They feel that much more that their teachers don't care about them. They feel, you know, either invisible at school or otherwise disconnected. Um, and they suffer academically as well. So there are, I mean, and there have been, well, there have been attempts to reform education for this age group almost as long as there's been education for this age group specifically because it's been so hard to do. And I think that it seems like in recent decades, educators are getting better and better at it in part by a movement toward K through eight schools rather than you know putting them all in each other's exclusive company. So there is, there, there is something about our education system that does you know, encourage unhappiness, it would seem. This this has been shown over and over again. And in fact, that's why I wanted to ask you about the Montessori school. Uh, one of my daughters went for preschool. What struck me about the school, which I loved, was it was much more um, structured and rule-bound um, than the preschool my other daughter went to. And also the parents had much less of a role in school. They were you know, they said goodbye on the sidewalk and the child went in as opposed to sort of being in the classroom all the time doing things. Oh, yeah. So I'm wondering, is that does that hold up throughout at the um, Montessori school where your children are? Yeah, I mean, the hallmark of Montessori education is like the multi-age classroom in the kids' independence, where they the teachers follow the child. So the kids have a lot of choice as to what kind of works they do, or like they have a like a three-hour-long work period rather than a 45-minute bell-separated thing. So they have a three-hour-long work period. They know that they need to do a math work, a a, a re reading work and a cultural work, and they get to choose which one they work on for how long during that period. So they get a lot of um, independence, but I also think that multi-age thing where they have like three ages together a lot of times or in, in the public in the public version of this, two, two grades together sometimes just because the way it breaks up. But um, so my daughter's my second daughter, my daughter's in a four, five, six class, and my other daughter's in a seven, eight class, grade seven and eight. And what's cool about that is that the older kids that, you know, there's there, I guess there is kind of a natural hierarchy because you have these different ages there, but the older kids always are, they're like part of what they do is they help the younger kids with they help kind of teach the younger kids things. And then the younger kids can see things modeled by the older kids. So it's a, a really very different environment. And there's usually two teachers in every class. Well, what you just described is part of the argument for K through eight schools, that the older kids do yeah. feel responsibility toward the younger ones. And often the schools, you know, have some kind of structured um, program in place, you know, where they mm -hmm. have a, a kid who's a little sister or whatever. So that reinforces that. And the younger kids have the older kids to look up to. And there is sort of school-wide community. And, um, you know, there are all kinds of 
there are just all kinds of ways that the kids can feel part of the community and stay connected throughout. So I, I, I wonder, it would be interesting to know in Montessori generally, um, I don't think there are that many schools, Montessori schools that go through eighth grade, but, um, but to know what it is, if, if this holds up, I think, I think Maria Montessori once famously said that she did not want to educate kids that age in early adolescence, that they actually were uneducable and should be put out on a horse farm. <laughs> I need to check that. That could be apocryphal, but I remember somebody telling me that, um, <laughs> I'm sure that the, the, the monastery people I know would have never taught me that quote. <laughs> <laughs> I will check. I will check. It's not in the book. Um, <laughs> it just popped into my head. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh my goodness. So, you know, you tell us that this time in a children children's life is more difficult than it has to be, even if your child's not in a K through eight school. <clears throat> And that we are part of what is making it so difficult. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? Absolutely. At that stage of life, for the reasons we talked about before, kids are very status oriented. They're very, you know, concerned with their place in the world generally, you know, who they are, what kind of family they're from, who they're going to be, what they're going to look like, you know, how they stack up into all sorts of ideals, you know, pop culture ideals beauty, body size, et cetera. But above all with their peers, you know, um, who's popular and who isn't and um, whatever form that stuff can take. And uh, we parents very often reinforce that whether we necessarily mean to or don't, although there are plenty who, who do, you know, who consciously want their kids to be popular and will do whatever is necessary is like, now we as parents know what it takes, right? Like we, we figured it all out. Like, you know, that like some good clothes and, and some good social skills and whatnot, like that kind of stuff matters as far as how easy your situation is in middle school. So I imagine a lot of parents are like, oh, I've got a couple of these answers. Let me give them to my child. You're, you know what? I'm sure, I'm sure. No, I'm just laughing. I'm sure you're right. That didn't dawn on me at all. I mean, I've long thought that I did my children a huge disservice by being me when they were that age. And you're probably right. No, you're probably right. It, that just never dawned on me before, but of course. Um, yeah. I, 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 yes, exactly. I think I've just, I always had so much dislike for sort of the mainstream, you know, that I didn't gear them toward it. I mean, I didn't express it necessarily, but I didn't, I didn't gear them toward it either. And you're, you're right. But that, that probably with normal people, normal people are probably doing that. Um, (laughs) But I think, I mean, look, parents know what it felt like to be that age. They know what it felt like to be unpopular. If they were, Mm -hmm. they knew what it felt like to be popular Either way, they remember a lot of pain and difficulty and they want to save their kids from that. Mm -hmm. That is just the, you know, the overwhelming motivation is to save their kids experiencing the kind of pain that they did or that they caused others. Um, You know, there's that too. And the problem is that when that occurs, and it occurs with everyone, everyone, I think, goes through that, whether, you know, all parents, I think, go through that to some extent, whether they're aware of it or not. The minute you start to lose your boundaries, 
with your kid and think like, oh, this is going to be awful because that's what it was like for me. Or, you know, I know what it is for him or her because I went through it, you know, so I know what it feels like. The minute that starts to happen, you become a much less effective parent because you don't know what it feels like for them. They're not you. They're just not. And, you know, you take away their ability to sort of have their own life, you know, their own issues, which they can then work on, you know, rather than have you sweep in and declare everything, you know, a, a, a tragedy and very often make things worse. And um, I think parents so often make things worse. All school administrators will tell you this, that the parents are too present now, especially when it comes to the middle school moment where they're really supposed to be stepping back and, and letting their kids spread their wings a bit. And it's sad because it really is for out of love. You know, mm -hmm. it's for all the right reasons, but the behaviors nonetheless can come out in some really contorted and really not very nice ways. Well, you talk about in the book, a situation where you, your daughter, where you wanted to, you, you, before there, they had, she had a challenge with a friend and you got together with that friend's mom and you guys kind of figured it out. And you talk about kind of saying, okay, well, maybe this worked before, maybe I can try it again. Can, can you share that story? I mean, and kind of what that perspective is about that stepping back from it now? Well, yeah, the, the idea for sort of trying to talk things through as, you know, moms and girls together came from when our daughters had been much younger and the other mom was actually a close friend of mine. So she came to me because my daughter was getting her daughter in trouble because her daughter was behaving in ways that were problematic. And she had already kind of been designated the problem kid. And my daughter was crying easily. And the teacher actually played favorites in a not very nice way. And so basically the other girl was in trouble all the time. And so she, <laughs> she got the four of us together and basically said, you know, um, to her daughter, you know, stop doing X, Y, Z. It isn't nice. She doesn't like it. I know you don't mean any harm, but it hurts her feelings. So stop. And then to my daughter, like, if you have a problem, why don't you talk about it with the other girl, you know, please don't, please don't go to the teachers, you know, crying because then she just gets in trouble and she doesn't understand what she's even done to you because she's not aware of it. And that went fine. They were both like, sure. And it was like, fine. It was absolutely fine. So I thought that that was a, you know, a kind of workable um, thing to be able to do. And so it was earlier though. It wasn't in the middle school period when the middle school period did come along and there was just friendship drama in a girl group. Um, very, very typical. And so I thought since I was friends with um, a couple of the moms, not as close as to the one in the other story, but I thought, well, if maybe we could all four, once again, like sit down, you know, over a meal or something and just sort of send the basic message of like, you're not going to be together that much longer in school, you know, just make it work. Like you don't have to be best friends, but just, just make life pleasant for each other. Don't cause problems for each other. You know, bare minimum, you share friends, you know, you don't have to be pulling everyone apart. Just, just, you know, basically just kind of like behave decently. Um, and the other mom was very cold when I suggested just the idea of trying to talk, which surprised me um, and said, no, it's very important to let them work these things out for themselves. 
which is true, you know, and so we did what you're supposed to do. We went to, the, you know, we notified the school counselor who then tried to intervene with the girls um, who avoided her like the plague, of course. And um, my daughter kept saying to me, call the other moms, do, you know, do something. And I said, no, it's not your age. That's not what you do, you know. And then I found out, I mean, years later, I found out that the, um, from another person, that the moms had actually been micromanaging all the friendship stuff the whole time. And this other person, when she told me about it, said the moms made it so much worse because they created these, there, you know, there were conflicts that the girls would have worked out and would have worked their way through, but the moms made the, it like a permanent problem that the girls couldn't find their way out of, you know? Mm. Um, and that was just, that was awful. And it all, and it left me feeling, of course, as though I were in seventh or eighth grade, right? Because what had actually been happening is that my own friends, people I thought were my friends, were kind of scheming behind my back mm. to exclude my daughter. Mm. Um, so, and my meanwhile saying, you know, oh no, you know, we're going to be very hands-off and let the school take care of this. So it was just instructive. And, you know, the book is full of stories like that from other adults who, who ended up getting drawn into kid drama in the middle school years. The kids would move on and, you know, there would be a mom who'd be left with no friends because she, there's one story in the book, there's some bad drama between the girls. Her daughter was actually bullied terribly by, you know, anonymous people, um, really suffered finally came back to school and was okay. Life was going on. And the mom in question found herself with no friends because she hadn't issued a formal apology to the other girl's mom over something her daughter had done in the right time frame, And there was no coming back from that. Oh, wow. I know. It, these stories just blow my mind and I, I hear them a lot. Wow. Okay. All right. So we don't, we don't want to be stepping in necessarily. We want to be stepping back and not adding to the drama. We don't want to make it more difficult than necessary, but yet we want to help our kids. Like we may right. have more skills. We may have more social, emotional skills than I'm sure we had in seventh grade anyway. And we may want to help our kids. So what, what, what should we do? What what are some of the things we can do like leading up to middle school or during middle school that, I mean, we don't want, obviously we don't want to label our kids. We don't want to assume things. We want to maintain, you know, that's what we talk about in mindful parenting is is like that attitude of, of kindness and curiosity. We also talk about the idea of whose problem is it? <laughs> you know, is this your problem or is this your child's right. problem? And and then just kind of being in that place of the helper and the ch as if it's a child's problem. So what can, what can we do, Judith? Well, I think there's so much of what you said that I want to respond to. I think my mindfulness is very much at the core of what I think is the most important thing we can do, which is to be aware of when we're getting triggered ourselves mm -hmm. and when our own emotions are on the line and are driving the way we respond and we parent. Because 
that is usually that usually means that we're sort of off kilter, off balance if our emotions are coming up too strongly and that we need to take a moment and reset before we talk about anything with our kids. And you know, so often something will happen at school that's painful. The kid goes back, you know, the it's usually the mom. I mean, it it shouldn't just be, but um usually is. Um you know, that they're just in, tor- you know, in knots all day long waiting and then, you know, see them after school and say like, what happened? What happened today? And the kid had moved on and forgotten about it. So you don't want to go digging in and sort of making something last longer. And the other thing is n- knowing your limits. I mean, I actually think, yeah, in a certain sense, our social skills are better developed. They're, I don't think they're as well-developed as we tend to think when it comes Probably. to dealing with the problems of middle school, yeah. because nobody really helped us by and large at that point. So I think very often we don't have the tools to be able to help them in a pr- productive way. But people who work in schools, who work with these kids do, or at least should. And you know, if you're fortunate enough to be in a school that isn't too huge and where, you know, too under-resourced, they are watching, they're seeing what's going on, and they're able to talk to the kids in a way that meets them where they are developmentally, and that also isn't taking sides. I mean, we will naturally, I think, take our children's side, um, and what, whereas what they really need is to be able to expand their point of view, to understand that there are different sides you know, which doesn't excuse bad behavior, doesn't excuse meanness. Um, but if they're going to basically be able to empower themselves in a situation, they have to be able to see that they're not pure victims. Mm-hmm. And I think that in our sympathy, our, our enormous sympathy and love for our kids, we very often tend to kind of, you know, dwell on their victimhood mm-hmm. rather than thinking about, okay, well, this sucks. What can you do? You know, what do you, what, what could you do? If we can serve in a kind of problem solving role and come to it, I think, as you said, with, with curiosity. So ask questions, but lightly ask questions Mm -hmm. um, and then be able to stay with our own distress because this, if they're having problems, it is going to cause us enormous distress. It simply is. And we're going to have to be able to tolerate it basically rather than get carried away with it and cap, you know captivated by it to the point that we can't think clearly like adults and bring more of an adult calm mature mind to the situation yeah and if we're getting carried away by our own distress of their situation we can't be that that grounding home base that our exactly. kids need if they are in distress. Like if my, when my 14 year old, um, she's, you know, she does all the like uh, in her room time, alone time, but sometimes she comes and flops on my bed at night and out comes a bunch of stuff. And it's, you know, if I'm in a place of distress at that, at everything, and I can't be that, that I can't have a steady heart a steady mind, a steady nervous system to be able to hold that, then, then I'm not really being of use to her. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, if you go just down to the level where she is and amplify the distress, then 
again, you can't help her settle. You can't help her sort of settle enough to be able to think clearly, process things, and figure out what she might do if there's something that needs to be done. Also, I think, you know, as parents, we tend to be incredibly judgmental and to express those judgments at an age when the kids are already very judgmental of themselves above all, but also of each other. And that doesn't help. If you're judgmental, they're not going to tell you anything. So Mm -hmm. you have to be able to create the space in which they could say things. You can actively listen and you can ask them if they, if they want help thinking Mm -hmm. about what to do you know, Mm. or how they want to go about trying to make it better. Mm. I appreciate the way you said that. Ask them if they want help rather than just jump in with the unsolicited advice. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in an interview, I can say all the right things in real life. It's something else. I was, you know, (laughs) yeah. but then I wish, I wish I had known when my daughters were that age, the things that I know now from having done this research, I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't, I didn't really, I mean, I realized in retrospect, I didn't really have tools beyond whatever I had been left with at that age. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, obviously, but not that much. Yeah. We tend to not to think that we shouldn't have to invest in these kinds of tools. You know, like that's what we teach in mindful parenting. We teach how to ground yourself and how to be present and how to process your feelings mindfully, and then also how to communicate. And it's like, these are, we, we just don't think that we should have to learn those things. You know what I mean? Like, we just think that we should have those things innate in us innately if we choose to, which is, um, I don't know. You know, it's but just we don't. I mean, it's a practice. It, it's mm-hmm. something that you have to practice. It doesn't come naturally. You know, our what comes naturally for most of us, or many of us at least, especially when it concerns our kids, is for our, our emotions to just kind of run wild. I mean, and that's what's so funny. Parents so often, when when I was saying I was working on a book about the middle school phase of life, they would just say like ah, raging hormones and kind of run away with this idea that the kids are so out of control. I mean, sure. They, they are pretty emotional at that age, but so are we. So are we when, when they're going through that period of life. So um, mm. I just think, you know, sometimes you have to think about like whose, whose mood swings are happening, you know, whose strong emotions are being vented. Yeah. Yeah. We tend to want to like control everybody else's feelings so that we mm-hmm. feel regulated. And <laughs> that's not a terribly effective strategy. No. But we want, so, okay, we want to be, practicing these things. We want to be grounded. We want to be able to be reflective. We want to be able to not take on that problem and, and be a a grounded, stable helper for our kids. If they have a problem, is there anything else we can do to help our kids kind of go through this time unscathed? I do think that we need to be able to identify some school adults who our kids feel close to and who they believe kind of sees things for what they are, you know, because I think very often kids feel like the adults just don't get it. They don't see what's going on. And sometimes that's true. And sometimes the adults really do see what's going on and they see it in real time and they can find ways to help the kids, you know, as opposed to just kind of casting blame, see what's going on in the dynamics, see what's going wrong in communication, in skill level, you know, I mean, you have different kinds of social skill stuff that, that come to play at that age. And some kids are just much further along than others. Some of them need help. They're not self-aware. 
And if they have somebody who's sort of with them eight hours a day or whatever it is, who is able to see what they're doing that isn't good and can point it out, not judgmentally, just kind of, you know, are you really happy with the way that interaction went? Do you think it could be done differently? That can be hugely helpful. And so talking to the teachers, if we know that there's a problem, um, can be a really positive thing to do, not demanding some kind of punishment for another kid, just saying, there's this problem, it's happening at school, would you mind taking a look and seeing if you can help them along? It tends to be appreciated. I think that that's um, very, very important. I think to the extent to which we can get our kids to kind of widen their view of how they're perceiving the world. Mm -hmm. So they are not just narrowly seeing it through the lens of kind of what they want, what they need, where they are, how they're feeling, but um, widen out to be able to take in the perspectives of others and understand that other people have their own life stories kind of churning in the background. And that sometimes when people act a certain way, it doesn't have to do with you. It has to do with what's going on with them. I just think it will it will help empower them. It'll help them think about ways to feel better in a given situation. I mean, to go around just feeling like so-and-so hates me and I don't know why is awful. I mean, that's the kind of thing you then carry forward through life. But having the vocabulary to be able to think, oh, our friendship is changing maybe because we're kind of moving in different directions and have different interests right now. Um, Maybe it's better for me since I don't feel good around her and her friends to see if there are other people whose company I enjoy more right now because I have more in common with them. That's a lot better than just feeling like, oh my God, my friend dumped me and that won't tell me why. So I think that it's ways like that by giving them a vocabulary where they can kind of understand themselves and their world. Again, lightly, not, you know, all with an eye to making them feel like they have some agency is really, really important. Okay. All right. So identify those adults I can help and invite, ask them to help. And then also to, yeah, what you're kind of saying is like, let's invite some open-mindedness, like rather than judgment, like let's, and we can do that in so many ways. I mean, we, my daughter and I were driving home from something the other day and, and she was like, oh, that car is driving super fast, way too fast. And I was like, well, maybe they're trying to get, you know, maybe they're, exactly. they're they've got like a, their mom's dying or something. I don't know, you know, like just modeling that kind of like not making assumptions. Practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And sort of questioning the assumptions that everybody, ex, you know, mm. just accepts without thinking, you know, mm. kids get labeled so easily. And those labels are so hurtful and reductive and and don't give anyone any room, you know, to grow or change. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to endorse that. We don't want to talk about, I don't know, mean girls, jocks, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever Mm -hmm. of that type. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if our kids are struggling, we can, with a friend or something, like we could reach out to that uh, other adult and at home, what can we do if, if the, we well, see that I would, I would recommend not reaching out to the other. Oh, you oh no, no, like to, a, yes, to like the, the other school parent. adult yeah. or like yes. the activity adult or whatever it is, yeah. the counselor. Well, if they're, you know, feeling bad at school, things are going badly socially, 
you know, hopefully they have a friend on the outside who they can spend time with to sort of escape that. Um, if they have outside interests and can be involved in, you know, other sorts of activities and they don't have to be, you know, hugely expensive, fancy activities, just about anything that brings them in contact with, you know, a different group of kids, but kids with whom they have things in common, um, with, who share interests, you know, where they can go do stuff they enjoy and that's relaxing. Those kinds of things are just lifesavers. Also being able to escape at home to a world that doesn't continue the social stress, the academic stress that more and more they're under at that age, having some kind of haven where they can just feel calm and good when they're not in school. And that's just, that's much easier said than done. I mean, so many of us, we, you know, we're running ragged all the time. I think from this past year, less, much less so than before. And I think a lot of families want to try to maintain that sort of calmer pace having gone through this, but um, that's so important. And I think being, being at peace with ourselves to the ex extent to which we can be taking care of ourselves, you know, remaining connected to the people we want to be connected to um, being as mentally and physically healthy as we can be is just so important because if we're incredibly stressed and unhappy, our kids, they always feel it. And as kids, they tend to take it on and believe that they have some role in it, even, even when they don't. Mm. So much wisdom there, Judith. This is amazing. I mean, I know we're kind of at the end of our time, but I'm curious, like if writing this, um, did it help you heal any old hurts from that time in your life? It really did. In part, um, although I had I had started to be aware of this earlier, it was helpful to be able to see that I hadn't purely been a victim in mm. um, eighth grade, as I remembered it. That in fact, I had done things that weren't nice as well. And on the one hand, that was incredibly painful to have to see, especially the way that it came to me because I realized, you know, I would look at my daughter's class and think, you know, who was I like? And I would, and I, and I would have to admit to myself that I was like, you know, this one or that one who wasn't all that nice. Um, and that wasn't a whole lot of fun to see. Um, but at the same time, it did give me a sense of agency. And it also, doing the research where psychologists sort of follow kids over time. There's uh, someone at the University of Virginia who started studying a cohort of seventh and eighth graders and followed them for a decade and did a, a ton of different studies. But one of the things was to see like what traits endure from early adolescence to adulthood and becoming more, and a lot of them do. I mean, there are a lot of traits we have at that age that stay with us. A lot of the people I interviewed who had very painful times when they were that age actually were having their first flare up of some kind of mental health issue that would dog them for the rest of their lives. You know, depression or anxiety or some people with bipolar disorder realized the other kids knew that they there was something different about them. There was something that that jarred or they were just vulnerable or whatever. And um, unfortunately, you know, the kids would pick on them and sort of go straight for that at the time. And again, there was no vocabulary for understanding this then for the people who at, at the age I was talking to, because people didn't talk about mental health stuff. They especially didn't talk about kids' mental health stuff. So they just internalized that there was something wrong with them, right? I mean, some global badness to them. Um, 
again, without the tools to be able to have their lives be happier and more successful then, you know, and then moving forward. Um, so all of that, I mean, being for me, just being able to think about that period of time in a much more sophisticated way to also to be able to have more of a sense of humor about it because some of a lot of the research I've it just strikes me as kind of funny um you know how how wretched everything is set up to be you know is like a terrible cosmic joke you know um in terms of what's going on in kids brains at that time and what the world hands them um I just found all of that I came out of this with tools that helped me as a parent as my daughters got older, um, and also tools that just helped me understand myself in social interactions much better. Because in a lot of ways, you know, we do have these enduring traits and who we are decades later, you know, the person who struggled in seventh grade is, is still there. Um, the underlying, a lot of the underlying stuff is still there. And hopefully, you know, we have become aware of it and manage it differently or maybe don't suffer over it anymore. But very often we still do. Hmm. I guess I, that makes me think of that. There's a saying that my teacher taught me, which is no, no mud, no lotus. And that is <laughs> that. That's true the lotus flower grows in the muck and the mud. And, you know, if you're a gardener, you know, you need compost, you need rotten vegetables and poop, and all this <laughs> stuff. And that without that, I mean, without that, you wouldn't have had this empathy and this strive to do this work that has, is shining light for so many other people. I think that the mud of my, the way I treated that friend in seventh grade really woke me up to the, that I had, I wasn't just a victim that I had these, these, you know, I could be this mean person too. And that was really jarring and, and wakening. And so, so maybe it's, it's those challenges that help us wake up to, to grow and change and toward in a better way. If we, if we deal with them, if we see them, yeah, if we do and see them, right. If we see yeah. them and think about them and confront them, then I agree with you completely. Um, in and of themselves, not necessarily, not always. You know, people just can form scar, uh, scar tissue. But I mean, that's something I'm very interested in right now. Basically, um, who, who, you know, comes out of the mud, growing and changing, and and who doesn't, and why. Mm, oh my God, that's a whole other podcast. Thank you so much, Judith. <laughs> this has been so, uh, it, it's fascinating. Your book is fascinating. I'm going to be diving into it in bits and pieces. And it's so it's really, I think it, you know, it is really helpful and healing to, to understand and all of that. So I, I really thank you for the work that you've done with this and, and that you're putting this out in the world and sharing your voice and with, with this work, um, the book is, and then they stopped talking to me, making sense of middle school, Judith Warner. Um, where else can people find out more about you and give, share any ahas they might have from this conversation with you? Well, they can always reach out to me on my website, which is just judithwarner.com. I finally got my name as a domain <laughs> after many years. Um, they can find me on Twitter at Judith Warner. Um, on Instagram, which I'll admit I'm not good at using, 
at um, at Making Sense of Middle School. And I have a Judith Warner Facebook page, which I try to remember to look at. So I would just say for social media, Twitter is the one that I actually see the most frequently and know how to use. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. I really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you do. It's so important. So helpful. For me, the takeaways from this conversation are about that safe haven, about that safe haven and that warning to give me some restraint from intervening. You know, like this whole pandemic has been hard for both my kids. They're in that critical time in middle school. Their friends are so important and it really, really separated and isolated them, which has been hard to watch. And I'm practicing just to be that open-minded, be that safe haven, make our home that safe haven. So I'm wondering what your takeaways are. I would love to hear them. Please tell me. I love it when you share the podcast and tag me and let me know. You can tag me at Mindful Mama Mentor. I love to hear your takeaways. Do you agree? Maybe you think that we should intervene a little more. I don't know. Let me know what you think about this episode. And I hope it's helped. You know, it really always comes back to that. Like we have to be that presence, right? We have to be that mindful presence where we can accept our own feelings. We can accept our kids' feelings. And so it always comes back to this work we do with ourselves. It's so, so fascinating. So yeah, if you want more resources you on that work that we do for ourselves, I have them at mindfulmamamentor.com. Check it out. Click around in there. And yeah, let me know what you think about this episode. You know, if you liked it, share it with some friends who it could help. And that's all. Just wishing you a great week. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the audiobook of Raising Good Humans. It's doing really well. The paperback got translated into Bulgarian. I have copies. It's crazy. So shout out to anyone who speaks Bulgarian right now. Shout out to you. All these resources are here for you and more at mindfulmamamentor.com. And I'm wishing you a great week. Lean into those moments of peace. Lean into those moments of joy. Lean into those moments, even those neutral moments. And notice how, hey, there's nothing wrong right now. And what can I appreciate? That really helps us to be that accepting, grounding presence. All right. Thanks so much for listening, my friend. Namaste. Say definitely do it. It's really helpful. It will change your relationship with your kids for the better. It will help you communicate better. And just, I'd say communicate better as a person, as a wife, as a spouse. It's been really a positive influence in our lives. So definitely do it. I'd say definitely do it. It's so worth it. The money really is inconsequential when you get so much benefit from being a better parent to your children and feeling like you're connecting more with them and not feeling like you're yelling all the time or you're like, why isn't things working? I would say definitely do it. It's so, so worth it. It'll change you. No matter what age someone's child is, it's a great opportunity for personal growth and it's a great investment in someone's family. I'm very thankful I have this. You can continue in your old habits that aren't working or you can learn some new tools and gain some perspective to shift everything in your parenting. Are you frustrated by parenting? Do you listen to the experts and try all the tips and strategies, but you're just not seeing the results that you want? 
Or are you lost as to where to start? Does it all seem so overwhelming with too much to learn? Are you yearning for a community of people who get it, who also don't want to threaten and punish to create cooperation? Hi, I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and if you answered yes to any of these questions, I want you to seriously consider the Mindful Parenting membership. You'll be joining hundreds of members who have discovered the path of mindful parenting and now have confidence and clarity in their parenting. This isn't just another parenting class. This is an opportunity to really discover your unique, lasting relationship, not only with your children, but with yourself. It will translate into lasting, connected relationships, not only with your children, but your partner too. Let me change your life. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com to add your name to the waitlist, so you will be the first to be notified when I open the membership for enrollment. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.